produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. On this edition of the program, something a little different. An in-depth discussion with Chief Purpose Officer Richard Buller about how human rights, social justice and giving voice to the voiceless have influenced how he does business. Here I was meeting President Dodaev of, you know, the self-declared independent Chechnya, you know, Rogova from Kosovo, you know, freedom fighters from around the world. And that, I guess, left me with an even stronger sense of deep responsibility. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Well, on the face of it, you may think that human rights and social justice don't necessarily play a significant role in business. But my next guest says they're inextricably linked. And if a company can look at the way they do business through the lens of having a positive impact and being purpose-led, it will lead to even greater success and engagement with their people, clients and communities. To understand how purpose plays an integral role in business, I caught up with KPMG's Chief Purpose Officer, Richard Buller. Richard Buller, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, Richard, we'll talk about your role as Chief Purpose Officer in a minute, but first, can we just start at the beginning? What was the younger version of you looking for when you started to become active in social justice? Oh, goodness me, that is getting me to reach back well and truly (laughs) into the memory banks. I don't know, it just was a sort of sense of wanting to make a positive contribution or a positive difference, like that question of, you know, why am I here? I don't know, does it come out of that sort of teenage angst, you know, when you're kind of trying to work out what am I doing here? And, And it was just this connection with things Tibet. And, and, mm-hmm. and I still don't know where that came from. Uh, and what it did was having me sort of look out. And, you know, I, I, I connected with the story of the Tibetan struggle and I started to educate myself. And, and I've mm. got to be honest, the other element of it, you know, my mother, right? So mm-hmm. there's no question, you know, she came from a real sort of working class uh, struggle background. Um, you know, uh, my grandfather was a, a welder in the shipyard who, you know, had an occupational injury that resulted in him not being able to work relatively young. Um, and as a result, you know, the pension that he got was 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 not enough really to get by. Um, and, and I can still remember him t- taking me eel fishing. So that's how they used to sort of make sure they got, you know, sufficient protein was he'd, he'd go eel fishing to, to supplement yeah, right. their diet. So, yeah, and the stories in terms of she was born just after the war, my mother, and, and the real struggles, you know, in the Netherlands because you know, my family's Dutch. Mm-hmm. Um, as the country recovered from having been occupied by the Germans. So p- perhaps that's the connection, right? Because, you know, Tibet's also experienced this struggle, you know, in terms of being occupied by the Chinese. And, and yeah, maybe there's something there. I hadn't actually thought of that before, Whitney. You mentioned Tibet a couple of times and you did go backpacking through Tibet. So was there a specific 
incident or event that happened while you were over there that sort of really galvanised your focus? Oh, look, no question. I mean, I'd spent this time engaging with Tibetans in Australia before I left for China. I really wanted my Chinese trip to be one where I connected with everyone. So it wasn't, I didn't Mm -hmm. go to China for the Tibetans. I went to China for China. I spent a month studying uh, Mandarin. I can still remember turning up at this um, foreign language school in Guangzhou for people who have come to China to study Chinese. And it was for people who were what's called Hua Chao Dashui, which is, it was a school for um, Chinese people, overseas Chinese who were coming back. Um, mm. And of course, I hadn't realised that that's what it was when I wrote off and applied for their summer course to be able to study Chinese. And when I turned up, of course, they looked at me and I didn't look Chinese at all. And there was all sorts of embarrassed faces. <laughs> <laughs> but, but thankfully, they let me stay. Well, I was going to say, did you do the yeah. course? Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did. And, 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 and in that sense, it was just extraordinary because I actually learned so much more to understand mm. the experience of the Chinese diaspora um, mm. and also just the strong identity of where you come from within China. It was a, it was an incredible way to not just learn the language, but also learn the history and the culture uh, of the Chinese nation. So I, I felt really privileged that I was accepted and, and I could do that. And oh my goodness me, it just resulted in the most extraordinary experience of traveling in China. I, I mean, there were times when I, I was surrounded by like 20, 30 people because they were hungry. I mean, we're talking about 1987, you know, and mm-hmm. they were hungry to meet foreigners and and to Mm. to understand my experience and and where I came from Uh, and in that sense you know to learn enough language from four weeks meant that I I could have this extraordinary experience of four months traveling through China and and a couple of weeks you know in in Tibet. So Richard while you were traveling throughout China and Tibet there was a Tibetan uprising, which was quite dangerous. Did you feel a sense of responsibility to tell anyone who would listen about that event and what was happening there? And can you just, you know, take me through that story? From the moment I'd arrived, and I remember meeting Tibetans in Guangzhou while I was on that um, uh, that summer course studying Chinese, mm. I met local Tibetans. And then I went and, and made that long trip to Lhasa. And I arrived uh, at the end of September, the evening before the 1st of October, 1987. And the 1st of October is, is, is the founding day of the People's Republic of China. And I woke up the next morning in Lhasa, which was this place that, you know, for years I'd been dreaming about going to visit. And, and, and as I walked around the Barkor, which is the, the, the marketplace that's in the centre of Lhasa, um, there was this buzz in the air and, and I was like, what's, what's going on? And I sort of followed the buzz round and, and eventually I came to this sort of uh, bigger square next to the Jokung, which is the central temple around which that bar course um, circles. But it was in front of a police station. I stood up on, on top of um, uh, an abandoned stall and, you know, the guy next to me said in perfect English, you know, do you want to know what's going on? And he was Tibetan. I was like, well, oh, hang on, you're speaking perfect English. He said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a Tibetan uh, from India. Uh, you know, my family went into exile and I, I've come back on, on a holiday, you know, and it was mm. just that in itself was just an extraordinary opportunity. And then he explained to me that a group of monks had just protested um, and they'd been arrested um, for protesting against the Chinese occupation on the 1st of October. 
And I stood there and watched and that sort of crowd grew and grew. And I could still remember there was this woman next to me, a Tibetan woman who had picked up this big rock and she started to break up the pavement and she broke it up into smaller rocks. And as she pulled these rocks out of the pavement, she was handing it to the people around her. And these rocks then started raining down on, on the police station. And that was, that was the beginning of an extraordinary sort of four or five hours where, um, you know, the, the protests, you know, became more violent. Yeah, they set fire mm. to the police station. Uh, they did manage to release that group of monks. I can still remember one of the monks coming out on the shoulders, carried out, and he had terrible burns. Um, and that's when I just had this sudden thought of, this isn't my struggle. <laughs> I'm not mm. here to die mm. for this struggle. I'm a witness. Um, mm. And I started moving to the back of that, you know, to get away because I just thought, no, mm-hmm. no, nah, nah, that's 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 not my struggle. Um, and that's where a young boy sort of took me by the hand and he led me away to safety, uh, and then up to his father's apartment, and 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 he spoke Chinese. The young boy, the father only spoke Tibetan, mm-hmm. and and this was where that sense of responsibility that I walked away with, you know, from that experience, was the story that was relayed me speaking my sort of holiday studied Chinese uh, translated through this young Tibetan boy to his his father who actually looked like his grandfather Um, and and what the old man told me was look in 1959 I took a gun and I I went into the streets and you know I I killed Chinese and for that I was imprisoned for many many years Um, and you know, now it's my young son's responsibility to take up that gun and go into the street, which is an extraordinary thing for t- mm. you know, a, a Tibetan Buddhist mm. to be to be to be articulating that in that way. And then he said to me, "But, but understand, please understand. You know, this is my country, and I cannot leave. But you have visited my country, and I want you to go home to your people, your country, and tell them what you have seen." Mm. And and it was just that that gave me such sense of responsibility about people who don't have a voice, mm. Mm. yeah, or who aren't heard. So I guess that that was transformational for me in terms of um, then wanting to yeah uh, you know, make sure that in in many many ways in as many ways as I could, I was I was supporting others to be to be heard who otherwise would not be and 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 were experiencing harm or you know, was struggling as a result of not being heard. So you came back home with a huge sense of responsibility. Um, Interestingly, one of your next career moves was seemingly not really connected. You worked as a trainee scriptwriter on the ABC drama GP. How did that sit with what you experienced in Tibet and that sort of growing sense of giving voice to the voiceless. Really easy for those that remember GP because GP was the socially responsible soap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and that was, you know, it was really quite intentional in terms of, no, nah, I'm going to go and work for GP because GP is drama that's always looking to deliver a social message. You know, I sought out a a casual film researching job in ABC mm-hmm. archives 
because that was where there was openings and through networks, I was able to start doing that one day a week. Because I was in the archives, uh, I watched every episode of GP and I watched some of them two or three times. Because if you want to go into the story department, there's no better way of demonstrating your commitment than actually knowing the backstory of the characters better than some of the writers, right? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. So, uh, look, yeah. you know, that, that, it was all really intentional, which which I still kind of reflect back on and go, gee, that was, that, that. I have to be honest, that was probably the only moment in my career where I was just really focused and intentional about going after a job. Right. That's interesting because human rights then really came back into focus as a topic when you were appointed to the global human rights role based at The Hague. What did you learn from that first global role? Oh, look, I'd, I'd say there was an intersection before that, Whitney, and that was mm, my producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I went to my producer and I said, look, I've just been asked to do the publicity for His Holiness the Dalai Lama's visit to Australia. This was 1992. Mm, mm-hmm. Can I have mm-hmm. a couple of months off to do that because I need to do the prep and then, you know, for the one week or the one and a half week that he's here and then, you know, I'll run the media. And, and uh Bruce, love him because he's what he said to me then just completely changed the direction of my life, which is extraordinary when you think about it. And he just said to me, Richard, you need to choose. Wow, um, that's interesting. I was. <laughs> and I was like, Bruce, mm, you know, I, and, and, and when you think about how focused I was in terms of getting that role, um, I chose for the Dalai Lama, you know, I, I chose to do that. And that's what then led to that, that human rights role in terms of an international human rights organisation based in The Hague. And did that role strengthen your passion for human rights or did it at all diminish it? Because, you know, those roles can be kind of mired in bureaucracy mm. and sort of red tape and things like that. So how did you, how did you navigate that? Oh, look, I... It, 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 Uh, What it was was just exploded my mind. I I had no idea. You've got to remember, you know, privileged white boy from the North Shore of Sydney. And here I was meeting President Dodaev of, you know, the self-declared independent Chechnya, you know, Rogova from Kosovo, uh, uh, you know, freedom fighters from around the world. And that, I guess, left me with an even stronger sense of deep responsibility um, I got to be really honest with you. The job was really easy um, because mm. you got to remember this was you know just a few years after the fall of the Soviet Union. All of these nations and peoples that were otherwise subsumed into other states were emerging, um, and they were incredibly you know, fascinating stories for journalists. Uh, and just the fact that there was this sort of alternative UN that in itself was a, a great hook. And it was a sort of small organisation, but we had a global platform and, you know, I, 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 it was a story that just needed to be packaged or stories that needed to be packaged. And, uh, I, 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 you know, me and the small team did a really good job of that. Yeah, and, and that sounds exciting. It led to another exciting role working with Anita Roddick, who for her time was quite legendary, you know, the founder of The Body Shop in the UK. I believe we need trade that respects communities supports families, respects the work of women, respects human rights, that every international or national trading relationship should have human rights at its very centre. I believe that passionately. I believe if we make a mess, we should clean it up or be penalised. I believe every product should be banned coming into any country if it's touched with child slavery or sweatshop labour. I believe this passionately. 
I believe that those that are now in control, economic governments, politicians and business people will drive us off the edge. She was quite a force of nature. (laughs) What was it like to work with her? It was, like I could still, when you ask that question, you know, Mm. the, the, the moment that comes back to me was the first speech that she asked me to write for her and I got it back and seriously I was struggling to see anything left of what I'd written. It was red everywhere. Serious editing going oh, on Oh, my goodness me. There was just this kind of gutting sense of, geez, did I really miss the mark that badly? Um, but it taught me resilience, right? So I was like, nah, I'm going to get her voice. Mm. So that's what I worked on and I'm pretty proud to say I think it was month six or seven those speeches started to come back with just some smaller tweaks, yeah, and and, and you you learn extraordinary things and she was, you know, she was a force of nature. Yeah, I always marvelled at how she could turn something that was essentially cosmetic uh, into a global human rights brand and it was so unique as well for its time, you know. It was was the first, really. It was Ben and Jerry's in the body shop. Those two companies emerged at the same time. The leaders of those two, founders of those two companies um, were of a similar age, you know, some might say ex-hippies, do you know what I mean, as they Mm. came out Mm. of that old freer thinking, broader thinking, more global thinking. And Anita was absolutely about using her business to further social change. While you were at the body shop, you famously coined the term blood diamond. <laughs> yes. So can you tell me the story about this? Because, you know, everyone uses that term. And Goodness me, we really are doing my whole mm-hmm, career. Mm-hmm. We? we are. This is your life, Richard. Look, <laughs> <laughs> Um, the Body Shop had a really progressive approach to encouraging engagement outside. And as Anita said, she didn't want it to be dog walking. Mm-hmm. I want you mm-hmm. to go out there and do something that's going to change the world. So she had a hub in Hammersmith of these emerging, you know, entrepreneurial, non-governmental organisations who were looking to change the world. And one of those was Global Witness. And this was a a, a young group of people that had come out of environmental investigation and said, we see a connection between environmental degradation. So, for example, the Khmer Rouge, the way that they funded for years their conflict was taking the best um, hardwoods out of uh, Cambodian national parks and then shipping them and selling them to furniture makers in the south of Vietnam and then we would buy them, you know, here in Australia in the local hardware store. Mm-hmm. So they they wanted to make that connection by doing deep investigations and uh, I, I became an advisor to them. And their next campaign was about UNITA and how UNITA and Angola was funding their conflict using diamonds. Mm. And what we were talking about was what was the campaign going to be. And it was at the same time that Peter had been really successful with that anti-fur campaign mm. with, you know, those mm-hmm. really uh, uh, you know, high-profile models draped in fur covered in blood. Right. And mm-hmm, I said, look, mm-hmm. if we want to cut through with this, you need something that's about, you know, the diamonds being covered in blood. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think you want to think something like, you know, maybe blood diamonds. And I guess that's that one of those moments, right, where most of those things is you're borrowing from what you've seen successful elsewhere, but you're putting it in a different context. And that's exactly how blood diamonds came to be. 
And then you founded your human rights consultancy, Banara. After working for these large global organizations, what attracted you to working for yourself? Because running a business is very consuming in and of itself, but doing what you do and running a business would have been a massive challenge. Uh, 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 That first part of my sort of career in terms of human rights was against companies, right, whether Mm. that was Bougainville and um, ERA or whether that was um, uh, Shell and and Agoni in Nigeria, there was a company involved as an actor. It wasn't that they were perpetrating the violence necessarily, but they were a significant actor Mm -hmm. in that context. And then I went, went to work in a company, which was a global business, it was the body shop, and then have that as a platform to speak because people were intrigued about, you know, a global business having someone with human rights in their title. And apparently I was the first, you know, in the world. People, others have told me I was the first sort of corporate role that specifically had human rights in its title. And and, and I remember when I made that move, you know, all of the friends and, and, and others that I'd worked with in terms of international human rights called me up and said, well, you know, you've, you've sold out, haven't you? You've gone to join the corporate And then when I would speak on a conference platform with other corporates about what it meant to be a responsible business, I'd get dismissed and go, that's fine for you, Richard, to say that, you know, from the body shop because that's not a real business. Mm, mm. And and I think that experience of both of those ends is when I then had the opportunity to start consulting. Now, if you think about my sort of career as working against business, working in a business and then working with business Mm. as a consultant, Mm -hmm. you know, that third part of that career um, has always been about taking the client as far as I can without scaring them off. So when KPMG came knocking and showed interest in acquiring your company, was it something that you had to think about or did you know straight away it was the right thing to do? Geez, I wish it was always as straightforward as being the right thing to do. Look, 2013, I'd overextended, you know, I'd grown the business mm-hmm. to a team of 20 people and I had to make people redundant. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do mm-hmm. yeah, in terms of being a business owner. So that was a significant um, learning point for me in terms of, oh, my goodness me, I, I've now got this debt. Um I've got this business that's actually been internationally successful. Mm-hmm. You know, we worked with blue chip clients and I can remember it was Catherine Hunter who was head of corporate citizenship. You know, we were sitting together on the board of the UN Global Compact Network Australia mm-hmm. and she tapped me on the shoulder and she just said, Richard, I know you're having a really tough time. I reckon you'd be a fantastic fit for KPMG. Uh, if you ever want to sell, we'd love to have that conversation with you. That's just so interesting, like a message from the universe just sort of landing like that. It was. It really was. Well, speaking of of change with your role, your role has recently changed. You're still leading the Banara team, but you also are now Chief Purpose Officer for KPMG. What does that actually mean? No, Chief Purpose Officer is is a work in progress Mm. and it was fascinating in terms of, I guess, that story of Andrew and when he became CEO, he sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, Richard, look, I'm I'm really keen that my agenda, which is about uh, creating a purpose-led KPMG, mm. I want purpose to be our North Star and I need people to know that I'm, I'm serious about it. I don't want it to just be good words and that's why I think there needs to be a role like a chief purpose officer. 
And there was quite some weeks of conversation around that in terms of what, what are you thinking, Andrew? And the first thing that he articulated, and it's, it's central to the role, is that conscience of the business. Mm, mm-hmm. Bringing those different perspectives from different stakeholders. So it's drawing, you know, from the very start of my journey around giving voice. Mm-hmm. To, to those who otherwise wouldn't be heard when significant decisions are being made by the firm. And, and, and that, that I you know, feel a, a kind of keen sense of responsibility to then offer in those alternative views in terms of being the chief purpose officer. And, and as he articulated, you know, it's sort of check and challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, check and challenge the organisation in terms of are the decisions that it's making and the behaviours that it's exhibiting absolutely aligned with our values, right? Because achieving your purpose in terms of, you know, for us, it's a, it's around having that positive impact on communities, you know, being that global, uh, you know, for global talent, that number one destination, you know, you only can get there by being purpose-led these days. You know, you've got to demonstrate uh, in your behaviours and your decisions that your number one focus is about having that positive impact. Now, you know, what I love about doing that is it's now doing it on scale Mm. in terms of where I've come from with my career is we want to do that and we want the clients who want to have services from the organisation that's more purpose-led, that's more authentic in terms of being purpose-led. And I guess that's what I sort of did on a very small scale with Benaro mm. was, hang on, the world is changing. We need to respond to those changing stakeholder expectations. Uh, and, and the way to do that is to take our clients to places which are more uncomfortable, but they go with us because they trust us because they're confident in us, right? Mm. Because we do inspire that confidence when it comes to making those significant changes. And and I think a big part of that is also what Andrew's leading now is we are changing KPMG. Richard Buller, thank you for joining the program. Thank you, Whitney. Pleasure as always to talk with you. All right, well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the program. Until next time, thanks for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Podcasts.